If you were here last Sunday, you heard probably the best gospel message to be brought out of Leviticus that, that I've ever heard. And if you haven't heard that, you should go and listen because it was fantastic. And so it's kind of like showing up for show and tell uh, in first grade with what you think is an awesome thing. And then one of your friends pops up and has like, you know, some uh, amazing atomic clock or something. And you're like, oh, well, great, because you happen to follow Wes and what an amazing lesson that he delivered. But we are studying uh, from Leviticus. So chapter 11, if you want to turn your Bibles there. Uh, this slide that, that Wes has been showing us throughout this series, I thought was just an amazing slide because it lays out Leviticus in a way that I've never seen, where you're talking about bookends to the book and ritual described on either side of it. And as you get closer to the center, you start talking about the priesthood and the way the priesthood was to minister to the people. And then you get to this section that we're going to start tonight, purity. And that really is around the center of the book, sort of the bullseye for, for Leviticus, which is the idea of atonement, which Wes has already touched on just a little bit. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about purity. I get to talk about ritual cleanliness. And then next Sunday night, Richard's actually going to take the second book in for purity, which is morality uh, and, and purity. And so we're going to do that. One of the things I think when you ever get into Leviticus that strikes you uh, as you're studying, at least it does for me, is the question of why. Uh, why are we studying Leviticus? Why are we studying the old law? Why am I paying attention to all of these pretty esoteric things that I'm coming across? And I think it's a, a good question to ask when you're studying purity uh, in the Levitical uh, law. Why, why does purity matter? And those of you that have little kids or have raised little kids know this why question comes up a lot, right? You, know, you get about uh, two years old, and no matter what the situation, it seems like the kids always want to know why. Why to everything? You say, look, uh, it's, it's time to uh, go out and do such a thing. And they're like, why? And so you find yourself explaining sort of over and over again to them why you're doing certain things. And inevitably, at some point, even if you've sort of convinced yourself you're not going to do this, you utter those words that no kid likes to hear because I told you so, Right? And there may be a couple reasons why that you say that. One is that you may have an explanation that you know is just kind of above their understanding and it would take forever to try to communicate that. Or it may just be that you're tired of answering why questions and you just want to move on with the task at hand. But I don't think God is a God that wants us to not ask the question why. Uh, I think he does want us to ponder what's the meaning, why is he telling his people this, and what does that mean for me today? And so we're going to do some of that. We're going to look at Scripture and say, why does purity matter? Why does the old law matter? Why would we want to even spend time with it? And the first Scripture I came up with is, in fact, the because I told you so Scripture. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Just do it. And sometimes that's the answer, isn't it? Sometimes if we're looking for the why uh, uh, answers to the question, we're going to come to you on the next slide, Ralph, that the why is to teach us to submit to God's will and control in our lives. And part of the meaning of the old law was exactly that, to teach his people to trust in him and to do what he said, even when it seems kind of arbitrary from our perspective. This next scripture answers the question uh, that Wes has been bringing to us this whole series God says, for I'm the Lord who brought you out 
out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And Wes has been telling us this word holy has a specific meaning. It means set apart, or I like the way that Wes has been talking about it. It means otherly, completely otherly. So much otherly that we can't even comprehend how holy and set apart and different and otherly that God is. And then he gives us this challenge. I want you to be holy too. What in the world does that look like? That's going to be a lifelong struggle, is it not? This next scripture, he actually does a little bit of definition. He says, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And so the first answer to the why question is to be separated. Next slide, Ralph. Does it apply to us today? Is this just an old law kind of requirement that we're to be holy as God is holy, but only if you're following the old law? Peter brings it forward in 1 Peter, does he not? He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you should also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And it's written a lot. That separation, that set-apartness, that otherly characteristic is supposed to be a characteristic of ours. For what purpose? This is the bookend for Peter as he's talking about holy conduct in the first two, three chapters of First Peter. And he tells us one of the reasons why we want to be separate, one of the reasons we want to be otherly. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Because being otherly is going to provoke the question, why? Why are you like that? Why do you make the choices that you make? Why are you responding to that situation in such an unusual way? So the next reason that we would want to study purity laws and the law in general is because we are called to be apart. Next slide, please. To live otherly lives in a way that reflects, even though imperfectly, the way that God is otherly. And the reality is that there's no way that God could describe to his people then or to us today how to live lives that are holy in the way that God is holy. And so he put down a law that did create that uniqueness, that differentiation that caused people to ask the question, what's up with this people? Why in the world do they act the way they do? Here's what Paul had to say about the old law. He's talking about the events that happened when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and all the failures that they had and all the consequences that came from their failure. And he said, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The law is here, and the things that we're studying are here as an example for us. We can watch how people responded and see where temptation lies and how to respond to sin and what to do when we fall. And to have the confidence to know that God won't allow us to be tempted in a way that we can't endure it. And so the next answer to the why question is to teach us through the example of the old covenant Jews what leads to temptation and sin. This is going to be more of what Richard talks about next Sunday than what I'm going to talk about tonight. Because in the ritual cleanliness law, you're not talking necessarily about sin. You're talking about what is it that under the law separates from fellowship. Richard's going to deal with some of the fun aspects of the morality purity code next Sunday. The next thing that we want to look at and always keep in mind uh, is that God had something in mind when he gave this law to the children of Israel. He says, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you possess. He had the people's best interest in mind when he gave the law. And I will tell you that this next answer to the why question, which is to live well spiritually, emotionally, physically under God's intimate care, is where a lot of people spend, in my opinion, too much time. They try to analyze the laws and come up with a a physical or an emotional benefit that comes with every law. And sometimes it's just not there. But underneath a lot of these laws is God looking after his people. The things that he's telling them to do are in their best interest. It's what gives them the ability to live well and possess the land. But more importantly to me, the law tells us that God cares a lot about us. He cares a lot about us and the things that we go through just in common life, the struggles that we have every day, the uh, ailments that we have, uh, just the things that are part of normal life. And when you read Leviticus, especially the chapters that we're talking about tonight, the chapters that Richard's going to talk about, he's down in the details of human experience. And it tells us that he cares about that human experience, enough to get in the middle of it and give us some instructions. Here's the most important thing, and the thing that I feel so grateful to Wes for, because in teaching this, there hasn't been a Sunday night where he hasn't brought the gospel message through. Paul's talking about why the law, why should we pay attention to it, what is it all about? He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise, promise made to Abraham, till the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. God made the promise to Abraham. Here's Moses in the middle of that promise. Here we are receiving the promise. Moses is acting intermediary long after Abraham received that promise. But God is one. And the promise that he made is for the ages. And here's Moses in the middle of that relationship that we have. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God, those promises he made to Abraham about salvation to the world? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Final slide. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Everywhere throughout Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the law that is expressed in Exodus, everything in the old law and the prophets points to who? Jesus Christ. And you'll see tonight that even the part that we're studying points to Jesus Christ, and it points us there as the perfect answer to this life and all of its messiness. So that's the last and the most important point, is to point to God's grace and mercy through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that brings us to tonight. Tonight is about the study on purity. It's Leviticus 11 through 15. Uh, this next slide shows that. Um, and we're talking about ritual cleanliness. Okay? The reason that ritual cleanliness was important, if you look at all of those reasons that we listed, we're going to go through some of the laws that God gave to his people. But if you were in a situation where you were ritually unclean, then you were in a situation where you could not have fellowship with the tabernacle or the temple and the priests until that was resolved. And in some cases, you couldn't have fellowship with your brothers and sisters within the community. And so it was a serious matter. But in most cases, the things that caused ritual uncleanness were not in and of themselves a question of morality. Now, it may have been a question of behavior, what you chose to do, but if you look at most of these laws, they really don't have anything to do with morality. They have to do with what is it that, under the law, is going to put you in a situation where you're out of fellowship? And how do you respond to that? So let's look at this first category. The first category, uh, it comes from uh, Leviticus 11. Uh, I'm looking at Leviticus 20 because this is kind of the summary at the end of this uh, section on purity, and God kind of sums it up, but he speaks exactly to what we often think of most when we're talking about Leviticus and the law, which is the dietary laws. Now, God says, and you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all of these things, all the things that we're going to talk about tonight and Richard's going to talk about next Sunday. They did all of these things, and therefore I detested them. But I've said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the people. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or anything with which the ground on which the, with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The dietary laws created a differentiation for the people, without a doubt. In fact, today, if archaeologists go into uh, the area of Palestine around uh, Jerusalem and they're excavating a site, uh, they will go straight to where they could find the dump uh, for the town and they would go look and see what's in the dump because you can tell a lot about people uh, from the trash that they throw away. And it's true for these people as well. And if they see in the dump no pig bones, 
they knew they're talking about a Jewish community in the excavation. If they see some that are, they knew it was a Gentile uh, town that they are looking at. And so there's all of these uh, specific rules about the kind of animals that you could eat, the kind of animals that you shouldn't eat. So there's birds that you can eat, and then there's a list of birds that you can't eat. In most cases, the birds you couldn't eat were the ones that ate flesh. So they were carnivores or they were scavengers, and so you see a bunch of birds there that uh, either by extrapolation or that were specifically listed uh, you shouldn't mess with. So no uh, eagles or hawks or falcons or vultures or buzzards or ostriches, which I find interesting. Ostrich is pretty yummy. Um, but they do apparently eat both grain and uh, flesh. And then you see a bunch of other birds that um, if they eat flesh, they're bugs. And so, generally speaking, you can kind of look at the birds and figure out maybe what God had in mind. This next category is interesting. For those of you that like to eat bugs, uh, you really only have three choices. They have to have a jointed hind leg, so you're going to have to eat grasshoppers, locusts, and crickets. Otherwise, bugs are out, which I find perfectly fine. <laughs> no problem. I'll skip the locusts and the crickets. Uh, but we know that the, lo that the uh, uh, locust was allowed because somebody famous ate locusts, right? Yeah, John the Baptist, that's he ate locusts and honey. I learned that in like, I don't know, when I was four years old. Ugh. But otherwise, bugs are, uh, are out. Uh, the next category, generally speaking, I think we don't have a problem with. You know, we don't often find ourselves looking to eat, you know, big cats or dogs uh, or, uh, you know, any kind of carnivores typically. So the whole list over there, I'm kind of like, yeah, no problem, no problem, no problem. Sometimes you know, some of you might like squirrels, I don't know. If you do, come to my house. I've got like 40 of them, so I'd love you to come clear them out for me. Mostly we're on the side where the herbivores are, and that's kind of the meat that we would choose to eat. But look at that. There's that pig. Pigs are yummy. Uh, almost everything's better with bacon. Uh, but here's the pig, and he says, you can't eat that. And, and for most of us, uh, when we think about uh, Jewish dietary customs, this is kind of the dividing line, right? This is where if you're talking to somebody who still looks after the kosher laws, and you may know some people that do, most uh, practicing Jews, whether they're progressive or moderate or conservative or orthodox or Hasidic or whatever they may be, one of the things that they have in common is typically they are paying attention to the dietary laws at least somewhat. Uh, they may go to the extreme in the way they prepare and everything, or they may decide that they're going to stick with the categories that are okay, but usually pork is... That's what's going to divide Gentile from Jew. I'm a pork eater. Uh, and then here's the other one that's interesting because there's a lot of things on the unclean water side that I like, uh, like shrimp and lobsters, uh, any kind of shellfish, uh, catfish. Uh, you couldn't eat a fish that didn't have scales. You couldn't eat uh, shark. Uh, and so um, you find those on a lot of restaurant menus. But there's a whole list of fish that are okay. And so if you are going to look after these dietary laws, you need to pay attention to uh, what God had to say about them. And this is the way that chapter 11 ends up. Uh, these are long chapters, by the way. We're not going to read uh, anywhere close to all the Scripture. But at the very end of the chapter where he talks about all the things you should eat, should eat and, and shouldn't eat, uh, he also mentions that you should also be very careful about what you touch. So don't be touching any unclean animals, and also don't touch any clean animals that have died a natural death uh, or any other kind of death other than uh, being butchered. If any animal which you may eat, and it says elsewhere in the chapter, and 
also the ones you may not, dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. Whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. You got it? Don't touch dead animals, right? This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Now, is it really about the food? Or does Paul later say, you know what, it's really not about the food? This is about distinction, right? First off, to teach the children of Israel to submit to God's will even if it seems kind of arbitrary. To be otherly, no other group ate like this. As I said, the archaeologists will go straight to that trash heap and know exactly who they're dealing with. And people noticed, and they said, why do they live this way? To live well physically under God's intimate care. And to be truth, many of the unclean animals, you can uh, endanger for eating them from disease more than you might be in the other category. And as I said, a lot of people go straight to this and they look for reasons for physical safety, that you would eat these and not these. And there certainly is a lot there, but maybe we shouldn't make too much of that. How do the dietary laws point to the gospel of Jesus and His grace? And one thing is absolutely true, which is a lot of ministry happens around mealtime. Meals were very important, and they continue to be important today. And God works through mealtime. He took it seriously, And he takes it seriously today. And one of the biggest blessings you can have is to get together with brothers and sisters or family around the table and let God work through that setting. I'm going to skip to 15 because 11 and 15 have two things in common. They talk about cleanliness and uncleanliness, but the the effect of being unclean is taken care of naturally. 15, uh, you guys can read that on your own because it's fascinating, but it talks about uh, discharge from the human body. And I picked out two scriptures from there just to kind of give you a flavor. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And then they go on to list a lot of kinds of discharges. And in 19 it says, When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And once more, lots of detail. And if you remember a fascinating story from the Gospels when a woman in this very situation uh, who uh, had the hemorrhaging reached out and touched the Lord, which what would the impact have been? Well, she was unclean, but she would have made him unclean. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Why would God put laws in there about discharge? Once again, to be submissive to his will and his control in our lives and to know that he cares. He cared a lot about that woman who had dealt with that condition for so long. And God in the flesh cared a lot about that woman and healed her. To be otherly. No other group at this point in time when this law was given took care of people the way that the law specified people need to be taken care of. If you found yourself with a physical ailment, you were pretty much on your own. Tough luck. God was very specific about how to care for people who are dealing with physical ailments or even normal situations. To live well physically and emotionally under God's intimate care. And we're talking about intimacy when you read some of these uh, scriptures. 
God cares about good hygiene. He cares about a healthy married sex life. He says you should be careful and be cautious when dealing with normal and abnormal discharges, back to the hygiene point. But it also points to God's grace and mercy through Jesus Christ because Jesus is the great spiritual, emotional, and physical physician. And he came to cure us of everything that ails us. And there's going to be a point where we have a body that we don't have to worry about any of these issues. Praise God for that. And then we get to chapters that deal with some pretty serious conditions. Uh, Chapter 13, what do you do in a situation uh, when somebody's skin indicates that they're sick? It's a really long chapter. And it's very specific about how the priests are to deal with this situation. This is the end of the chapter. It says, This is the law for a case of leprous disease in a garment of wool or linen, either in the warp or the woof or any article made of skin, to determine whether it's clean or unclean. Not just the person, but their surroundings, the house they lived in, the bed that they laid on, the clothes that they wore. There were rules specifically about what to do in the situation where somebody's got something wrong, some skin disease. Leprosy is the way they describe kind of a broad set of diseases, not just Hansen's disease. But Hansen's disease is the one that everybody feared because that was a death sentence. So in that particular case, if you've got something going on in your skin, then you are to be brought to the priest at the tent, and the priest was going to come out, and he was going to give you an inspection, and he was going to pronounce you clean or unclean depending on what happened. And then there was a certain amount of time, and it depended on what the the situation was, where you were going to be ceremonially unclean, which meant that you couldn't come into the tent of meeting, In some cases, you shouldn't have fellowship with the community. And in certain cases, you needed to go outside the camp to be in uh, isolation while this thing sorted itself out. So why would we have laws about skin diseases? To submit to God's loving care. Once again, no other group took care of people who had these kind of diseases like the children of Israel if you had leprosy in Canaanite communities, you're, you're on your own. You are outcast with no support whatsoever. And we may think it's harsh to put the people with leprosy outside the camp, but outside the camp is better than on your own wandering in the wilderness. There's still a support system there to try to take care of those people. To live physically and emotionally well under God's intimate care, he cared deeply about balancing the needs of the sick and the needs of the healthy with his laws. And once again, to point back to Jesus, who's the great physician. And then buried here uh, in the middle of those chapters on ritual cleanliness, which sort of took care of themselves, are two chapters that talk about something that's required. The first is speaking about childbirth, chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she should be unclean. If she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. So we could talk a lot about why it's different for the boys versus the girls. Um, It was definitely a patriarchal society. Male children were prized, particularly if the first child was a male. That was a blessing. Um, Also, there was an event that you had to be clean for in order to participate in, which is the circumcision of the male boy. 
And so seven days is about as much as you could do and still participate in the eighth day circumcision. So it's important that you landed on that date. The other thing that's interesting about 12 is that this is the first time when you're talking about ritual uncleanness where there's a response that's required from the person. And so there is a process of atonement. So at the end of the chapter, it says, And when the days of her purifying are complete, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Now, why would you need to have atonement after childbirth? There's nothing sinful about having a child. There's nothing uh, that the child did or that the parents do. But there is a bringing back together. And you'll remember from Luke chapter 2 that Joseph and Mary did exactly this thing. The boy Jesus had been circumcised on the eighth day, and then at the appropriate time they came to the temple. They met Simeon, which was a wonderful exchange. And if you read Luke chapter 2, you'll see that Mary and Joseph brought uh, two turtle doves, I believe. The law allowed for the fact that if you were not rich enough to be able to afford the one-year-old lamb, that you could simply bring the two doves. And so Mary and Joseph turn up at the temple because guess what? They were poor. They had their baby in a stable. And so the best they could do was bring the two birds. But was there a lamb? There was. So there's a process that God put in place to reconnect. Reconnect with the community. Introduce the child into community. To bring God and child and parents back into full fellowship which is a celebration, and no one at this time celebrated children and birth like these people did. Next slide. They lived around people who would abort their children, who would throw them out if it wasn't the child that they wanted, most often girls, if there was a physical defect on the trash heap. And God said, you're to be different kind of people. You're to have tremendous respect for the newborns and those that aren't born perfectly. And I'm going to be in fellowship even in this situation where the rest of the people you live with don't respect what's going on here. God cares about babies. He cares about new mothers and getting some rest. But he also reminds us of our sin nature. Birth does have something to do with sin because we're all born into a sinful nature. And he points to God's grace and mercy through Jesus Christ because Jesus is the source of atonement. And then right here in the middle of this, this is an amazing chapter 14. Because it talks about what happens when somebody's cured of leprosy and how they respond. The Lord said to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Okay, chapter 14 is talking about a situation that didn't happen very often. That's when somebody actually was cured of leprosy. The end of verse 3 says, Then if the case of, leprosy, of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, if the priest determined that they were healed, celebration. It's a miracle. And here's what they were supposed to do. 
The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed. Two live clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel. Where do birds live and reside? In the skies, right? These are heavenly beings. A heavenly being in an earthenware jar. Who does that sound like? You are to sacrifice one of the birds in an earthenware jar over fresh water, pure water, even running water, depending on how you translate it. Is water involved in salvation? He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop, and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water, and he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and let the living bird go into the open field. Two birds. One killed in an earthen jar to pronounce somebody clean. And then that bird returns to heaven. See Jesus in chapter 14? The other interesting thing about chapter 14 is that there's a similar process that is called for the house that the person lived in. Same exact process. The house is cleansed by the sacrifice of the two birds in the earthen jar. And then if you want to read it, and you should, you should read chapter 14. You should really take a look at it because the other thing that happens in chapter 14 is that the priest anoints the formerly leprous person, the person who's been pronounced as clean with the blood on his ear, right ear, right ear, right thumb, right big toe. And then the priest comes back and anoints them with oil on their ear, on their thumb, on their big toe. In a ceremony that looks remarkably like the one the priests themselves had to anoint them as priests. Unlike everything else in these chapters where you take somebody to a priest at the tent of meeting, what happened? The priest went out. The priest went out of the camp to find that leprous person where they were and then treated them like a priest. Why do we have laws on leprosy healings? Only one reason. To celebrate the miracle of unexpected and unmerited salvation through atoning sacrifice. Because there weren't any rules about how you were going to cure this. Hansen's disease doesn't have a cure back then. And it's all about atonement. Atonement means literally a purging or a wiping or a washing. It means at-one-ment because it's all about reconciliation. So when we read about atonement in the Levitical law, it's pointing to how do you get reconciled. Next slide. For us, we know how we get atonement. John told us in 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, talking to all of us, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But just like uh, us back then, God didn't want them to sin. He wanted to keep that law perfectly, but no one did, just like no one can today. But if anyone does sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's all about atonement. It was back then and it is today. And we have the perfect form of atonement. And just sort of a gut check on this whole thing. If we're thinking that we're not in that category of needing atonement, we're so wrong. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have at one We have reconciliation. We have community. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Cleanses us continually. Not like going to the tent of meeting, not like having a priest come out and anoint you, but as you live your life, that happens continually. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, and we're out of fellowship. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He says it again, just to drive the point home, if we say we haven't sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Here's the message from tonight. You are clean. You don't have to worry about whether you touched a gecko or whether or not uh, you have something wrong with your skin or whether you have leprosy or whether you're dying from cancer. None of those things matter because you are clean in Jesus Christ. And when you leave here tonight, you need to leave as a clean person. The blood of Jesus Christ is cleaning you as you live if you've accepted Him as your Savior and you're walking in the light. Here's the slide from Wes's sermon last Sunday. You are a royal priesthood. As a royal priesthood, you're going to have to go out of the camp. You need to go find people that are unclean, that are hurting, that are out of fellowship, and anoint them. Anoint them with Jesus Christ and not with blood and oil. We have a responsibility as royal priests to get up out of our camp and move out. Richard knows this, one of my favorite chapters in in all of the New Testament. This is our prime directive. This is our mission. If anyone in his Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, what? Reconciled us, atoned for us reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? And everything we read about Leviticus points to Jesus Christ and the atonement that He is for all of us and for the world. And praise God for Him. I don't know. Sometimes Wes offers an invitation, sometimes not. But tonight, if there's somebody that's sitting there in that pew feeling unclean, even though you're in Christ Jesus, you shouldn't. But if we can help by praying with you, we would love to do that tonight. If there's somebody sitting there that feels unclean because you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ and allowed Him to atone for you and have His blood wash you clean, baptistry is ready. It would be awesome. 
So that invitation is there. Brian, you lead us in a song.